morning, good morning. Again, it, it really is great to, to be here on, on a Sunday morning, to be able to worship collectively with uh, other brothers and sisters. Um, I have not told this couple I'm going to do this, so I'm doing this a little bit impromptu-esque, but we have an amazing couple um, that just this past, was it last Sunday? Saturday. It was last Saturday, gave birth to their third daughter, and that's Matt and Lindsay Wiegand, so it's good to see you guys here. Matt and Lindsay are a couple of our worship leaders over at the West Side, and so they were given the weekend off, and so they decided to join us over here at K-Town. So good to see you. Make sure you check out the newest addition to their family. She's absolutely beautiful. And you want to give us a name? Zelda. Zelda. Beautiful little girl. So congratulations again to the two of you. We're uh, grateful to see you here this morning. So I'm going to jump into the message right away. Uh, Last week, um, we started a series on the fruit of the Spirit as found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And initially, we told you that this was going to be probably about a three-week series, and then this past week, we decided to reconsider it. It's going to be a little bit longer. How many weeks? Eh, that's a surprise. So, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to um, dive into this. But in, just in case you weren't here last week, I kind of want to reset the, the, the foundation that Geneve laid. And so before we decided to get into discussing the fruits of the Spirit, it was important that the uh, groundwork be laid for understanding what is fruitfulness. And so Geneve took us to John's Gospel, chapter 15, and read to us uh, verses 1 through 8. And so we're not going to read through that right now, but just to give a quick little review, we learned from those scriptures right there that there is a gardener that there is a vine, there are branches, and there are eventually fruit whenever you're doing like agrarian types of of things. And so God the Father himself is identified as the gardener, and it's the role of the gardener to set up the, the climate and the environment so that fruit can grow. And so God is the gardener. There are times where he comes and he'll remove dead branches that aren't producing fruit. And there are times where he'll lift up branches to maybe get them exposure to more sunlight. And then there are other times where he will prune branches that are already producing fruit so that they might be able to produce more. And then we have Jesus himself who identifies himself as the vine. And it's from the vine that the ability for fruit to grow in the first place on the branches even comes. In order for fruit to be produced, the branches have to be connected to something that is life-giving, and in this case, it is Christ himself. And then we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are the branches that bear that fruit. And then the more we become like Jesus, the more we are able to showcase those characteristics that are part of his character and his nature, hence the fruits of the Spirit. And so today, we're just going to talk about that first fruit of the Spirit, the one that's known as love. Now, in our English-speaking world, we kind of use the term love to describe anything that we have a fondness for. So we might make comments like, oh, I loved that movie, I love Indian food, I love my spouse, I love my kid, I love my dog, I love that song, I, I, I love my parents. You know, it, it's just kind of like this generic term that we use to describe anything that we enjoy or something that we like. And so the thing that's kind of funny, though, is when we get into the New Testament and we start looking at the Greek, 
we'll notice that there are different words for love that are, that are used. And so the reason I'm bringing up Greek is because the New Testament was written almost exclusively in Greek. Fragments of it are, are written in Aramaic, but the bulk of it is written in Greek. And so when we see the word love, we need to kind of dig a little bit deeper and figure out what term or what kind, what category of love were the Greeks referring to when we see that in our English translation. And so the Greeks had at least six common words that were used for love. Now, the first one is the word storge, storge, which refers to parental love, the relationship that we have with our parents, the relationship that we have with our children. It's a very unique relationship, and right now I have that relationship with only three people, my mom, my dad, and my son. The second one is phileo, which refers to brotherly love or friendship, brotherly love or friendship. The reason why Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is known as the city of brotherly love is because it has that Greek root word as part of its name. Third, eros, which is where we get the word erotic, which obviously infers like an intimate, sensual type of love. Four is pragma. This is a model of love, typically a positive context. And so you might be thinking of maybe a a, a couple that you know that have been married 40, 50, 60 years, and through all sorts of just craziness that life throws at them, they stay with each other. And not only do they just stay with each other, but their love for one another is strong. Or another model of what love could look like in action might be when I think of uh, Mother Teresa and the way that she laid her life down to serve those who were just the outcast and the most destitute and the poorest of the poor in the country of India for decades and decades. It's a model of love, something to be emulated or appreciated. And then number five, it's called falasha, falasha. And so this is a love of self. Now, in a positive context, it could mean something along the lines of being willing to take care of yourself, to make sure that you're seeing a doctor on an annual basis to get checkups. It might mean uh, exercising well, eating well, making sure that you're getting enough sleep, having a good community of friends to connect with. It could mean that, but the actual origins of this word in the Greek are actually uh, the negative connotations, which imply all sorts of um, egotism, uh, being self-absorbed, narcissistic in nature. And so, um, obviously, like extreme forms of this type of Self-love might manifest itself in things like hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure for one's own sake. But then we've got the sixth kind of love, and it's one that if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard on numerous occasions about, and it's called agape. And this type of agape love is love without condition, without end. This is the love that says, no matter what, I'm committing to you. And no matter what life throws at us, I'm not going anywhere. When I said, in richer, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, better for worse, that's exactly what I meant. I might not always like you. <laughs> I might not always like you, but I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Oh, that was funny. 
<laughs> We're not trained counselors, just so you know. So. Oh, funny. But it is this sixth word, agape, that is used primarily throughout the New Testament. There are other Greek words that are used whenever we see the word love translated into English in our New Testament translation, but the majority of the time, it is actually the word agape. And in kind of more Christianese type of um, terms, that is used to indicate God's complete, unconditional, unwavering, fully committed, covenantal love that he has with his children. In fact, this particular Greek word, agape or agapeo, or a derivative of this love word, agape, is used 320 times in the New Testament. And so, what does agape love look like? I mean, if the Bible is going to use this term so many times, wouldn't it make sense that it would probably expound on what this kind of love looks like, what it is? Unfortunately, it does in one of the most well-known passages of Scripture that we often hear at weddings or in church services. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. So we're going to dive into this a little bit. We're going to look at how the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, actually breaks down and explains to us what love is. And he starts off, he just goes, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, it never loses faith, it always hopes, and endures through every circumstance. So here is what agape is. Paul tells us there's only two things that agape love is. It's patient and it's kind. What's really interesting is he gives us a list of seven things that agape love is not. We often in our culture talk about what love is, and we we equate it to a feeling. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes, but we often don't take the time to think about, well, what is behavior, what are characteristics that are not loving? So Paul goes through seven. Agape love is not something that is jealous, it's not boastful, it's not proud or egocentric, and it's not rude. It doesn't command to have its own way and then throw adult-like temper tantrums if they don't get it. Can we, don't, don't, don't nudge anybody or point at anybody, but I, I think we can at least acknowledge we have seen adults, not even necessarily people within our own household, have adult types of temper tantrums and just kind of shake our head and think, what are they doing? It's not irritable, and it keeps no records of wrongs. Now, that doesn't mean that we're expected to forget things that have happened to us in the past. I haven't found anywhere in Scripture that says that we are to do that proverbial forgive and forget. Forgive, absolutely. Absolutely. But to forget, I I don't I can't find any place in the Bible where we are expected to forget that certain things have happened to us as though they they never happened. But what it does mean is that we don't go around reminding people of how they have hosed us in the past. We don't go around and just at our own convenience 
bring up something that happened in the past and remind them, this is how you, you messed with me. This is how you wronged me. This is how you sinned against me. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. Now, if I'm just being honest with you, um, this is sometimes a struggle that I have. Now, I don't write down all the times that somebody has wronged me. I just have a really weird memory. And those of you who know me know that it's, it's a little bit quirky, to say the least. I'm that annoying friend who will have heard somebody tell a, a story a couple of different times, and even though I wasn't there during this particular incident, if they start telling the story wrong, I'll be the friend that jumps in and says, no, it wasn't in 2013 that this happened because you were still living in California back in 2012, and what you're referring to actually occurred in October of 2013. And, like, I'm that annoying friend. Yeah, there, there's a couple of you who are holding your tongue, and so I thank you for that. But, but that's me. Annoying, yes, but also harmless, fortunately. Okay? And so... But, but there are times, well, in those circumstances, it's harmless, but there are times where Geneve or another friend of mine might be having a little bit of a tense discussion, and they'll ask for an example of something, and I'm like, okay, well, it was this month, I was wearing this, we were sitting here, this is what you just ate, that morning for breakfast, we had had pancakes and eggs, you know, and, you know, it's just, that's just how my mind works. And so, there have been times Geneva's had to call me out and has just asked, babe, have you really forgiven me of that? And so sometimes I have to catch myself. Just a little bit of transparency there. But can we be honest? When when we're around people who are on that list of things that love is not, um, we usually don't like being around those people. Maybe you do. I I prefer to be around people who are patient and, and kind and not boastful and and proud. But here's the other thing that's really interesting about what Paul does. Not only does he tell us what agape love is and what agape love is not, he tells us what agape love values. And he gives us a list of six things that agape love values. Agape love values what is righteous, and it grieves evil. It values what is true, even if it means that we're going to become hated by society for telling people what truth is. Romans 12.9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Well, what does love look like in action? Well, it calls out evil for being evil. One of the things that um, historically the, the American church has gotten unfortunately really good at is bringing truth, but bringing it with a club or a bat and beating people over the heads with it. Agape love is able to present truth more like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. There's going to be cutting There's going to be hurt. There's going to be pain. But the reason that we go under the knife is because we trust that that surgeon is bringing healing to us. And unfortunately, the the church, 
of Jesus Christ, and at least the U.S. has done a really good job of shooting itself in the foot time after time because we didn't understand the truth needed to be presented like that surgeon. But we still call out what is evil, and we still continue to preach truth. Whether that's calling out racism or identifying issues like human trafficking, kind of like the given ones that everybody recognizes as being evil. But then there's also lying and manipulation, things that maybe are a little bit more tolerable, and yet love says we're supposed to call that out. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but if we call out truth, does that mean people are going to eventually hate us? Well, they might. But Luke 6, 27 through 31 says this. Jesus is telling us, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Kind of goes against uh, Facebook ideology, doesn't it? (laughs) When was the last time that we actually decided we would seriously pray for somebody that we didn't like? Selah, just let that sit for a minute. But agape love also values the protection of people's worth and dignity as individuals who are created in the Imago Dei. One of the things that we see all over the place, you cannot turn on the television, you cannot turn it on social media without seeing headline after headline that just dehumanizes different people of different political persuasions or religious preferences. But agape love says... You're created in the image of God, and while I might detest some of your behavior and your actions, I never have any right to dehumanize you. Agape love values trust and hope. And finally, it values perseverance, even as we go through heartache. Romans 3 I'm sorry, Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So Paul tells us love is patient, it's kind. He gives us a list of seven things that love is not. Then he gives us a list of six things that agape love values. Something I want to kind of bring attention to is is this. Has anybody noticed that there was nothing on any of those lists that equates love to personal happiness? Happiness. 
It's not suggesting that happiness is not a natural byproduct of loving others and being loved, because it is. But fundamentally, love is not rooted in the emotive. Now, emotions, again, they can occur as a result of being loved because love is not inherently devoid of emotions, but what I'm trying to say is they are not the source of knowing and experiencing love. It is the outworking. No, this, this list of what love is and what it is not and what it values are rooted in character issues. And so I think we need to sometimes, and this may hurt, but let's pull out that scalpel. I think we need to ask ourselves, or better yet, maybe we need to ask somebody that we're close with, spouse, if you're not married, then you know, maybe a, a, a close friend. Maybe we need to ask these people, how do I do on this? Am I somebody that is patient? Am I kind? Or am I arrogant and boastful and rude? Do I demand that things are my way or else I get angry? I know um, a number of people that I, I, I work with fit into some of these different categories, you know. And what's really not surprising at all, but it is kind of interesting to, to look at, is the people that I work with who tend to be really, really patient are the people that you never hear anybody say anything negative about. They might give constructive feedback about their job performance, but as far as their character, they never have anything bad to say. But on the flip side of that, there are people that I work with that are known to be real hotheads. And while people might respect them for their knowledge and what they know, these people wouldn't follow this hothead as a leader. Just kind of interesting to kind of take a look at how we are just more naturally drawn to people who exhibit these types of characteristics that fall in alignment with what agape love looks like. This kind of love, this agape love, is all about serving other people, even if it's a sacrifice to you or us. This doesn't mean that, that we sacrifice our, our marriage or our role as parents if we have children. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we just sacrifice those roles in order to help out other people. But it will often mean that a lot of the time that we have, the resources, the plans that we have, may have to take kind of a back seat if it means that um, we're going to help people become more like Jesus. And the Bible tells us that's not a sacrifice, that's an investment. How does this love then, this agape love, how does it manifest itself? This, this sacrificial love that's goal is to just serve others. John 15, 12 through 13 says, this is my commandment. Jesus is telling this, this to his disciples. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love 
than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There's a story of a group of American prisoners during World War II who were made to do hard labor while they were in a prison camp. And each of them had a shovel, and they would dig all day, and then at the end of the day, they would come and give an account for their tool in the evening. And so one evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard who oversaw them, and the shovels were counted. The guard counted 19 shovels and turned in rage on the 19 prisoners, demanding to know which prisoner did not bring back his shovel. No one responded. The guard took out his gun and said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner did not immediately step forward. After a moment of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head down. The guard grabbed him, took him to the side, and shot him dead, and turned to warn the others that they had better be more careful than he was. After the guard left, the men counted the shovels, and there there were 20. The guard had miscounted. The boy had just given his life for his friends. Sometimes to love means to choose suffering for the sake of another. The laying down one's life doesn't only mean that you're going to have to die for someone. It can also mean that you are intentionally and conscientiously deciding that you're going to put aside your priorities, your ambitions, And again, go and serve people if it will help them become more like Jesus. So a story of what this living type of servanthood looks like um, reminds me of a, a story that I heard a number of years back about a couple that had been married for something like 65 or 70 years. And somebody asked them, okay, what, what, is, what is your secret? How on earth? these days, do people even live long enough to be married for 70 years, 75 years? And yet you guys did this. And when we see you, you're still holding hands. You guys look like a couple of like crazy teenagers walking through the mall. You you know, you guys are still stupid in love. How did this happen? And they just kind of smiled and they said, well, we're competitive people. (laughs) I was like, competitive people? What are you talking about? Well, we decided early on in our marriage we would have a competition every single day. We decided to wake up and see who could outserve the other. What would our relationships look like if that was our objective every morning that we woke up? Now, some people, you know, kind of still struggle with some of those things that love is not. Some people are like, I'll lose a competition like that. Bring it on. Serve me. (laughs) You know? (laughs) God help you. (laughs) We've all got some growing to do. But what if both people like in a marriage, woke up every morning and they were like, I'm going to outserve my spouse. Or if you're single and you live in a household of other people that might not always be difficult or might not always be easy to, to live with, what if you woke up every morning and decided, even if they're not going to, I'm going to outserve them? 
Another example might be the, the middle-aged couple who for years have been talking about retirement and what they're going to do when they retire and how they want to see the world, but all of a sudden one of them has a parent who is nearing the end of their life, and so rather than finishing out their career so they can kind of bulk up their 401k, they decide to retire early and use some of those funds that they were going to use to travel to actually modify their home so that they can enjoy the last few years. There's a Hollywood movie that's um, pretty well known. And I'm not going to say the name of it, though you may know what movie I'm talking about by the time I finish um, my explanation here. But there's a movie that came out a while, a while ago, maybe 12, 14 years ago or so, where um, if you were to watch the last 15, 20 minutes, you'll notice that there's an actor by the name of James Garner who continually visits his wife with Alzheimer's. never really knows what he's going to get when he goes to check to check on her but he goes day after day serves loves reads to his wife half the time she doesn't recognize who he is that's agape love the way that we showcase the love of God, the Father, and the character of Jesus Christ is in how we love others, especially those who are, have been deemed the hardest to love. Whether it's a societal cast-off or a corrupt business person, Jesus still expects us to love them the way that he loves us. We don't get to decide whether or not they're worthy of it. The only way that we'll ever have the capacity to love like this is if we are connected to the vine known as Jesus Christ. The way that we know we're connected to that vine is when we begin to see growth. We begin to see our mindsets change. We begin to see our temperaments change. And people that we interact with on a regular basis will notice that there's a change in us. Keep in mind that Growth does take time. But just like fruit is going to grow better in certain conditions, so too will we become more like Jesus Christ if we are in the right setting. If you want to grow quickly, spend time reading the Bible. Spend time meditating on its truth. Spend time trying to figure out how to apply those truths to your life. Get in community with people who are going after the same thing you are. You'll see growth come a lot more quickly that way. Would you stand with me? I think it's safe to say that none of us in here have arrived at the place where we love others perfectly. At least I haven't. 
But as we leave today, I want to pray over everyone here that we would love people in the way that points to a relationship with Jesus Christ.